1: Good afternoon and good evening rugby fans. and Welcome to episode 50 of the DNVR Rugby Podcast. It's kind of surreal to say that these 50 episodes have flown by. So thank you to everyone who's listened, subscribed, downloaded, read my work, allowed me to continue to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, We'll start the show like we do every week with the breakdown, but before we jump into the breakdown, I wanted to take a second and talk to you all about First Bank. First Bank is the official banking partner of Infinity Park and DNVR Rugby. They believe in banking for good, doing their best to do right by their customers, communities, and employees. Banking for good, member FDIC. Uh, So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into the breakdown. This week's show is going to be a little different. If you listen to last week's show, you know I talked about how busy I am this week, so Um, I'm having a really weird week with some other commitments, so the show's gonna be shorter, breakdown's gonna be shorter, but I wanted to make sure I got an episode out for you all. Um, So with the breakdown, we'll just talk about the MLR news today. won't get into any of the fixtures, um, unfortunately with all these championship matches coming up, but uh, we'll talk a little about MLR news. Um, So the first big piece was that Caneloa Hawaii will not be joining Major League Rugby in 2021. They announced last Friday, Um, Kind of like they talked about on the show, if it was going to be good news, I think it would have came out before Friday, uh, before the long weekend. That's like the perfect time to dump some bad news. But last Friday, um, around 10 or 11 in the morning here in Denver time, uh, Kanaloa Hawaii Rugby put out this statement. Kanaloa Hawaii CEO email extract to the members of MLR dated uh, September 3rd, 2020. Aloha, MLR Associates, quote, Given the uncertainty and continued complexities of COVID, both here in New Zealand and Hawaii and across the United States, we undertook a due diligence review and, moreover, a thorough investigation into the financial stability and long-term viability and sustainability of the MLR competition, the result of which presented a range of high-level concerns for our organization. The MLR has not been able to provide the type of assurances COVID plan, proposed match schedule, others that would enable the trust and confidence required to continue with our membership goals. Initially, the lack of insight and planning around a COVID strategy and the postponement of training to January 4th was the focus of our concerns. However, the situation was compounded by a list of other more sensitive issues around governance, policy, and the financial performance of the organization as a whole. We believe that once the MLR is in a position where they can provide greater clarity and assurances for the health, safety, and well-being of our staff, players, and of course a more feasible solution for our investors partners and sponsors we will reconsider our options then as an aside we formally actioned a request to dispute as a part of our ENA process to undergo a full investigation into the financial viability of the MLR and also to review what was offered to Kanaloa Hawaii during our ENA negotiations The result of which is that the MLR has offered Cantaloupe Hawaii an opportunity to terminate our ENA with provisions to reinstate a membership opportunity for 2022. We are considering our options in this regard also. End quote. We now look forward to providing an alternative option for our players, staff, and volunteers for 2021. So that was the first statement that they put out. And uh, to be quite honest, when it came out, I didn't have time to read it. So on my computer, I just grabbed a quick screenshot. And then I saw circulating around Twitter and stuff that they changed it. So that was obviously pretty harsh. Um, Doesn't sound like a a club that's too happy with the competition. So they changed it. And Derek Brissett did a good job, a friend of the program, writes for Layman Sports. He did a good job of kind of capturing the changes on his Twitter account. So uh, shout out to Derek. So this is what they changed it to um they just pretty much lopped it It just says aloha mlr associates quote given the uncertainty and continued complexities of covid both here in new zealand and hawaii and across the u.s we undertook a due diligence review and moreover a thorough investigation of the financial stability and long-term viability and sustainability of the mlr competition the result of which presented a range of high-level concerns for our organization the mlr has offered canloi an opportunity to reinstate a membership opportunity for 2022 End quote. We now look forward to providing an alternative options for our players, staff, and volunteers for 2021. So still, honestly, still kind of harsh. That's not going to be the last we hear of Canelo Hawaii, I'm sure. And also that, I mean, neither of those statements sound like a a team that wants to join in the MLR. So uh, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on all that. Like I mentioned, though, it's not going to be the last we hear from them. Uh, The other big piece of MLR news this week was that Eddie Jones uh, was hired as a special advisor in San Diego? This Legion announced that on uh, the 9th, so on Wednesday. World renowned rugby coach Eddie Jones, I'll read you the, the release. <laughs> Excuse me. World renowned rugby coach Eddie Jones will serve as a coaching consultant for San Diego Legion. San Diego Legion is excited to welcome Eddie Jones with his extensive rugby experience to support the team where he will consult on the operations at every level, both virtually and for limited time periods on the ground in San Diego. Said Jones, my primary commitment remains to my England duties and other international commitments, but I have a passion for growing the game of rugby. I was very impressed by the vision and ambitions shown by San Diego and its ownership in delivering a professional rugby outfit with the clear aim of winning trophies. I'm excited to support them in that endeavor, end quote. San Diego Legion chairman, Darren Gardner agreed with Jones' sentiment and intention. Quote, we want San Diego Legion to continue to build a world-class rugby organization and need to have everyone performing at their best. Eddie Jones is the benchmark of professionalism and global achievement in rugby. We are confident he is the best person to help us do that. We are also very committed to winning a championship for San Diego, and we believe Eddie can play a key role in helping us to achieve that goal. Uh, End quote. Eddie Eddie Jones boasts more than 25 years of first-class and national team rugby coaching experience. He has coached various national rugby teams with great success, including Australia and Japan. Jones is currently the England national team coach. He will work with his uh, his contributions to San Diego Legion around his England coaching responsibilities. Jones' experience is also expected to deliver an immediate benefit to the overall play of Major League Rugby and rugby generally throughout the United States. Quote, Eddie Jones, bring rugby credentials and knowledge and experience that currently doesn't exist in the United States. End quote, said San Diego Legion CEO and President Ryan Patterson. Quote, we are very focused on developing U.S. rugby at all levels. We are sure rugby players and fans right across the U.S. will be excited to welcome Eddie with open arms. End quote. So that's kind of San Diego Legion's release. Obviously, it's a big hire. That was a big, big piece of news I saw come out on Saturday. Uh, something that, you know, adds some legitimacy, I guess, to the, to the operations of MLR and, and, you know, just makes it more appealing to some people overseas. Um, so we'll see, you know, hopefully there's a season that Eddie Jones will actually be able to get to work on. Um, but we'll we'll just keep an eye on all that as well. So that's kind of wraps up the breakdown, short breakdown this week. Um, there is a lot of, of good rugby on this weekend. I encourage you to check it out. Um, I'm just unfortunately I'm strapped for time do not have time to go through all the fixtures today so that was kind of wraps up the breakdown so we'll jump to the interview portion of the show uh, excited to have Luke Gross on USA Rugby Hall of Famer was inducted in 2019 uh, 62 caps for the United States played in three World Cups He's so had a 13-year professional rugby career all over the world um, most recently was a defense coach for the Colorado Raptors in 2020 uh, he was the 2016 head coach of the Sacramento Express, of the professional rugby organization, and he also is Glendale's director of amateur rugby. Had a really good conversation with Luke a couple weeks ago. I'm um, Looking forward to having you all check it out. Uh, teases a little bit of what's going on here in Glendale and uh, with more to come in the next few weeks, but um, really enjoyed my conversation with Luke, and, and uh, I guess with that introduction, we'll go ahead and kick it to that conversation uh, with Glendale's director of amateur rugby, and USA Rugby Hall of Famer, Luke Gross. All right, now we welcome on to the show USA Rugby Hall of Famer and Glendale's Director of Amateur Rugby, Luke Gross. Luke, how are you doing?
0: Not too bad. Thank you, Colton. Yeah, thank you for joining
1: me. I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, Luke, the first question we ask everybody that comes on the show is just, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from?
0: I grew up in a small town in Indiana called Decatur. It's a... uh, about thirty miles south of uh, Fort Wayne, right on the Ohio border. Okay, I've
1: never spent any time in Indiana. You don't know what you're missing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so I know. I guess the first thing uh, that I knew about you when I, when I first learned about you is that you were a basketball player. Did you play any other sports when you were growing up, or was it was it strictly basketball? And can you also tell people how tall you are first? Just um, get out of the way first.
0: Well, I'm I'm an old man now. Yeah. At my height, I was about six nine and a half. Okay yeah um, so I played basketball I wrestled yeah. um, uh, ran track swam did did all the sports just right.
1: loved everything
0: so. right
1: uh, how can you tell me a little bit about your basketball career um, when did you start playing like from when you were a little kid or would you start taking it serious in high school if you could just kind of take us through your basketball career? Uh, was playing biddy
0: basketball and, and all that. Um, my first sport was baseball and I oh, was right. one of the kids that struck out at T ball. I don't <laughs> know if it was possible but I, I struck out. So I, I stayed with basketball um, started taking it a little more serious in high school mm-hmm. and uh, ended up going to Indiana State University on a scholarship uh-huh. um, and then I transferred to Marshall University in, in Huntington, West Virginia. Um so that's that's the basketball career pretty yeah. much. Um, do you want to transition into rugby? Yeah, that's the yeah. next
1: question right there. How did you get into rugby then? When did you when did you I guess learn, learn about it? When did you start playing? How how did you get into the sport? Um I picked up
0: rugby in grad school at Marshall. Okay. I, I I decided to go to grad school a little late. Um, and all the smaller one-bedroom apartments and two-bedroom <laughs> apartments were gone. So I, I rented a big house, a big six-bedroom house close to campus and subleased all the rooms out. Okay. Well, unbeknown to me, five rugby players oh, decided wow. to rent for me. And I didn't care. I was just like, uh, just pay me rent and clean right. your mess up. I don't give a shit. Yep. <laughs> Sorry the language. Yeah, um, yeah, I get that. And then one thing led to another, and I, uh, I found myself uh, uh, playing rugby.
1: Yeah. That sounds like a messy house. Was it, it was.
0: It was a complete <laughs> mess. Um,
1: it was a very social house. We had a lot right. of fun oh, and yeah. stuff like that. Normal, normal college. So how did you, when did you get hooked then? like, Was it your first practice? Was it the first match that you played? When, when did you get the bug? So our coach was a guy named
0: Mark Mazinski. He yeah. actually lives in Steamboat now. He's okay. a doctor up there. He was in med school, and he'd been to England at the time, so he was our coach because he'd been to England and knew rugby, right, (laughs) so um, one training, didn't have a clue what I was doing, Mark Mark Komazinski, who was the coach, was also the other lock, he said, follow me and do what I do, (laughs) Um, so uh, Thursday night training, we played against Eastern Kentucky um, that Saturday in in a rainstorm and mud up to your knees, running around. And at that time, I just fell in love with the game. Right. It was such a physical, disorganized mess that it kind of suited me per, per, to a T.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, the next question I want to ask you, Luke, is how you got picked up with by the Eagles. But I feel like there's a big gap. So could you kind of take us through the, your career, like up to the, your time with the Eagles? Does that make sense? After, this, actually, after this match in the mud?
0: <laughs> actually happened pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, So that was my first year of grad school. After my second year of grad school, uh, we were finishing up our season. I got invited to the Midwest tryouts. Okay. And at the Midwest tryouts, I was seen by a scout who uh, invited me or talked to Jack Clark, who was a national team coach at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, They invited me to um, uh, Belmont Shore Mm -hmm. out out in L.A. uh, to try out for the team. So I flew out there and tried out for the team. And this was towards the end of the summer so at the time I was living in Cincinnati starting to play for the Cincinnati Wolfhounds um, and so I got picked up for the U.S. team to play a match in January in, in Atlanta against Ireland and that was my first cap.
1: Wow what do you remember about that? Do you Were you nervous what was kind of going through your mind for the, that match? Um, I Jack Clark was a was a
0: very good coach, and he knew how to handle a crossover athlete like myself, who mm-hmm. wasn't really coached. And he, if if you take a crossover athlete and you give them everything, they tend to not do anything because uh-huh. you think about everything. <laughs> but Jack just kind of um, put me in a box, and he said, "You you get the ball, you run forward. Someone runs at you, you tackle them. You catch your line out. You catch your kickoffs, and in scrums you push." Yeah. If there's a tackle in front of you, you ruck. That's all I did.
1: It's that simple. Yeah, it is. It was well, a, a very game. <laughs> simple game.
0: But he he kept me from thinking too much and he
1: kept me very focused
0: where I could be the athlete I was.
1: Okay. So then from from that point on, how did you get picked up by the Harlequins, I guess? Is that like the next logical step in your story, your rugby story? Yeah, um so so from
0: there um, in that match, it was televised back to Europe and we, we did pretty decently against Ireland and mm-hmm. an ice storm in Atlanta. It was a mess. <laughs> um, I had a couple of tryouts and one of them was the Harlequins. Um, I believe the other one was Bath and I think Northampton mm-hmm. were the three tryouts. Um, but, uh, when I flew into the Harlequins, that was my first stop in London. Uh, they, they, uh, said, well, we'd like to see you run around a little bit with the team training and all that. So all right, that sounds good. So yeah. um, they threw me in a scrum after we had warmed up and did some stuff, and I didn't have a clue what was going on. <laughs> um, and I get in this scrum, and I was taught this technique where you lock your thumb in the jersey of your other lock. Uh-huh. And the scrum collapsed, and my thumb uh, was broke. Oh. So here I am. <laughs> Uh, you know, an over, hour into oh, this, yeah. an hour into <laughs> all, you know, off the plane here. What, what's going on? And, uh, so I went over to coach Dick Best was his name, went over to coach Best and said, coach Best, I think I, I broke my thumb Oh, you did not. Trainer, he broke his thumb because yeah. it was all mangled, not of right. place once I showed. Um, so, uh, uh, after the training, I'm in, I'm in the training or after the, the team was done training, I was in the training room, Dick Best came in to see me and he said, this is what we're gonna do. This is what I'll pay you. It's a two year contract, you'll get your bonuses, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Sign here and I'll fix your thumb. It's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Wow, uh, that's yeah.
1: That's like a whirlwind of a day. I wouldn't be so <laughs> Out of my element, I feel like, if that was me. So then how long were you with Harlequins then? I was with the Harlequins
0: for uh, two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the second season, a gentleman, another American guy named Tom Billups, mm-hmm. uh, walked on. He was the U.S. national team hooker at the time. Um, tremendous guy. He, he walked on and made the team because wow. of his work ethic and attitude and just sheer grit. You know, it was, right. it was tremendous. So it was me and Tom there. And I was there just for two seasons uh, because I was so unknowing of rugby. I, I was such right. a student of the game. I, I didn't know. You know, wow. and Dick Best did a lot with me. He did a lot of video work with me and had me do homework and all that. Yeah. Um, but I just needed to play. Right. And I did play for the Hollyquins uh, a lot of times coming off bench or, uh, you know, things like that. But I, I, I needed games week in and week out to actually get better. Right. Um, so an opportunity arose over in Italy right so it's not the best rugby at the time it wasn't great rugby but it was competitive and it was be- better than anything back here in the States and mm-hmm. I would have played you know 30 plus, plus matches a year right. with the in the Italian League or in the European competition and then and then your internationals all summer. So I was getting forty games a year. Wow. Which was tremendous, which that learning curve is right. huge. Yeah, just so. what the
1: doctor ordered it sounds like. So yeah. what what club did you move to in Italy? And like how did that opportunity kinda come about? Like did they reach out to you or your representation at Harlequins or like how did the opportunity to go play in Italy come about?
0: So at the Harlequins, we had a gentleman named Massimo Cattito was one of the front row. Just uh-huh. to step back a little bit. <laughs> yes. So Harlequins was such an international team. Just to explain that second year, what what the tight five alone looked like. Uh-huh. So your uh, your front row was English, um, Irish, and Italian. Your wow. two second rows <laughs> were uh, Welsh. And American. So that um, was your tie yeah. five. It was it's a great was melting pre-
1: pot. It's yeah. Rome, right?
0: <laughs> anyway, so back to Massimo. Massimo was the, the loose head prop. Uh-huh. And uh, he had a lot of people back in Italy. And him and I became pretty close as we played together in the same team and stuff like that. And he said, you know, Luke, there might be an opportunity here for you in Italy. So uh, he found me a club. It's called Ravigo. It was in the top division in Italy. Um, at the time, they were in Europe competition also. Um, and it was about 50 miles south of Venice. Mm-hmm. So, and it was just a smaller <laughs> farm town, a town of about 20,000 people, wow. but loved their rugby. Um, so it was a huge opportunity. So I went there for two years and then down to Rome. Uh-huh. Uh, played in Rome. And then from there, back to Canetoli uh, in Wales. Yeah. Uh, from Canetley went up to uh, South Yorkshire. Played for um Rotherham when they were in their premiership, and then from Rotherham up to Newcastle, wow, so that was kind of and then there was Doncaster and there also uh when I stopped playing in the top league, went down to um like a minor league mm-hmm. it was it, it was good competition they had
1: older players and younger players and yeah so you you played and you lived in a lot of different places. Did you have a favorite place, like of all those places that you just mentioned? Was there was there one or two that that you really enjoyed your time there? Oh, god, um,
0: I'd have to say, for living and life yeah. and quality, uh, Italy, loved yeah. Italy. One of my favorite places was Rome. Just absolutely loved Rome. But for rugby, um, I mean, every place had their pluses and minuses. But yeah. for sheer rugby and the team culture and everything, I would have to say. Um, in wales yeah. yeah it was tremendous player led coach coach was awesome let us lead just gave us guidelines uh, another american gentleman who was a crossover athlete named dave hodges was there also uh, which really helped
1: that did so when before you went to italy did you know any italian at all what was like that transition like i imagine it'd be kind of hard to communicate and but i mean especially play if you I don't know. Did you know any Italian at all? What was
0: like? Uh, no, I, no Italian at all. I'm. <laughs> how did you uh, get
1: by then? How did that all work?
0: Uh, you know, you just you just make it right, and right. you you force <laughs> you yourself to start way. learning and all that. Thing. Yeah, it, it was actually uh, it takes you so far out of your comfort zone, yeah. which is that's to grow, grow as an individual. Yeah. yeah, that's how you grow, and and it really. It opens your mind a little bit. Take that Indiana farm boy and yeah. throw him into <laughs> England, you know, into London. Right. And all of a sudden now you're in Italy. Yeah. You know, it's...
1: What, uh, how long did it take you to kind of get your feet under you then, would, would you imagine? I mean, I guess, just how long do, did it take you to till you felt comfortable living in Italy? And... I'm pretty
0: laid back. Yeah. Um, I would say less than a month. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> and, you, you know, you start surrounding yourself with people that, um, speak a little bit of English and you're starting to pick up Italian. So you just kind of communicate through even if you don't speak English or they, they don't speak English and I don't speak much Italian, you get your point across, you know, you figure it out. Yeah. Uh, how was the food? Oh man. (laughs) I won't even talk about it. I can't even go to an Italian restaurant here. (laughs) It just ruined Italian food. food. Yeah. That's that's a shame.
1: Uh, all right. So, uh, I guess the next question I had is, so you had 62 caps for United States. And you're a member of three different World Cup teams. Uh, what are some of the things that kind of stick out to you when you think about your international career? Does is there like maybe a few tours that come to the top of your mind? Um, some of those World Cups, anything? What What do you think about like when you look back on your international career? Man, it was. It's. It, I don't even know how to
0: answer that. Every Everyone had a special right. Uh, thing to it, you know, a certain player or a certain thing happened on the pitch or the city you're in or the country, you know, um, there's no real real one individual Uh or moment that I can really think of. They all have their, their part. Yeah. Um, I, I think that first cap, even though it was in Atlanta in an ice storm against Ireland, it was such a pinnacle moment for me The lights kind of came on a little bit, you know? Um, and then, uh, another one, like the, the first, we started competing in the Pacific Rim, which was Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, uh, Japan, Hong Kong, U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. And every summer as a U.S. team, we would travel around to those countries. It was, that was tremendous. Yeah. But to go to Japan and play in front of, you know, 60,000 Japanese fans and, in, in just incredible, right. just incredible. Um, or I, I can remember the time we're in Hong Kong, right? And it's it's July in Hong Kong. It's not cold, <laughs> and the uh, humidity is incredibly high. And you're playing, you're kicking off at two p.m. because right. they know the, the the Yanks can't the handle yeah. the heat, right? <laughs> you know, or uh, that last World Cup um, where unfortunately my body gave out. I was the oldest guy in the World Cup at 38, and yeah. we had the oldest guy myself and we had the youngest guy on the team who was 19 (laughs) 18 or 19 um you know just just all those different memories and stuff and I could talk about each match each tour in the same
1: way you know that's that's cool that you can do that because I feel like a lot of times I mean you you might feel the same way but it just goes so fast like I'm sure does it feel like it was a blink of an eye and I, I was I was kind of uh uh
0: a tourist a lot of times. I would always take my camera. I mean, that's good, though. I have a lot of photos. So you go back and reminisce about each other, and it brings back memories, which,
1: yeah. yeah. I feel like it's good. I feel like you have to do that. You have to, I feel like that's how you soak in the moment in its entirety, you know? Yeah. So here's another kind of big open-ended question that's maybe it's not the best question to ask, but I like asking, I think I've asked everybody that's done the show, is if you have a favorite rugby memory, or maybe a few. And I like asking people this because, it's always different like when when Luke White was on he was talking about like a high school match that he played that's like his favorite rugby memories in front of 5000 people or something like that. So I wonder if there, if you have something like that. Do you have one or two or a few maybe that come to the top of your mind? Probably the
0: one that really sticks out is that first World Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're you're representing the US on the national stage. And that first anthem that is played at, at that first match, mm-hmm. you know, and this is the '99 World Cup. I, the emotions I felt, uh, I was so proud, yeah. you know, because every time I took the field, I tried to think back. I'm representing myself. I'm representing my family. I'm representing my city, my state, my, you know, yeah. all the way to your country, you know. And I, I always try to. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about <laughs> this. But the the emotions that you feel. And uh, the pride and the the honor, you right. know, it was always such a, such huge things. And, um, uh, coach Clark, Jack Clark, yeah. um, really did a good job with making sure you remembered all that stuff and who you were representing and stuff and, um, carrying that in that, that first field, that that's probably the biggest moment I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. How, how do you keep it together before like you like you said, you're getting goosebumps now. I can only imagine in the moment. I, it just seems like – how do you, like, harness that to go, like, play a game and do your yeah. job? <laughs> That's <sounds like> ridiculous. <laughs>
0: you, you're you fired up for a good time, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you fly around a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, for that first uh, 10 minutes. But after that, really, th- that first 10 minutes or the first big hit, you kind of ease one. into it. You go yeah. back into it, and you get back into your rhythm and
1: stuff. Right. So I know you just talked about <coughs> your, your no, you're good. Your body kind of given out in that last World Cup. Uh, when did you decide to finally retire? Um, well, the mind the mind never retires, right? right. Yeah. So um,
0: it was so after that that um, World Cup, that third World Cup, and I herniated a disc in my back, mm. lost control of my bladder a little bit, and my mm. leg was flapping around. It was oh. it was very scary. Yeah. Um, I was I was not team oriented at that point because you you get self absorbed very yeah. quickly. So um, the coach and I sat down at the time and thought it's time for me. I should I should go. It's more important about the team. So I I took off. I went back to Chicago fixed myself. But um, at that point I was like, yeah, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean I had to. I was right. I was 38. My you know herniated back it was not You're good. Right. I mean, I, I, did, I did come back a little bit and started coaching and playing a little bit for a couple of clubs in South Yorkshire and England because I still had a contract mm-hmm. to fulfill. Um, but after that, uh, we moved back to the U.S. Nice.
1: Yeah. All right. So what year was that? 2008. Okay. Yeah. So you've been back 12 years now. That's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then There's, the next... Oh. as long you know as long as I was over there been yeah. back here Oh yeah that's crazy to think about uh next thing i want to ask you about luke is is the pro rugby experiment and i know that you were the head coach of the the Sacramento Express and there's a lot of stuff you know we could we could rag on pro but i kind of want to ask just like some of the things that you remember about that and like um what was that like to like be a head coach of a t- of that that first kind of iteration of pro rugby was it what did you learn from like that experience um
0: I suppose uh, we'll talk about how I ended there, ended yeah. up with Pro, yeah, and right. then. So when I came back, I started working with uh, USA Rugby, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was such a, a big transition for me because I'd, I'd coached a little bit while I was in in the UK and stuff, yeah. but not really at a higher level or a real serious kind of way. So um, the CEO at the time was. Um, um, oh, I can't, Nigel Melville. Sorry. His name was my, Nigel Melville. And he, he uh, kind of took me under his wing, and he had me put together uh, a line-out. My, my first job was to put out a, um, a line-out presentation for um, high school and colleges. Okay. So I put it all together like a PowerPoint, and then I started traveling around and presenting that. Then we added in the contact area. I found a backs coach that could travel with me. I found a scrum guy. I found a defensive guy. So we started catering all this to local teams and what they would need. Okay. And then, and then from there, uh, I started. To, I took on the age-grade teams, kind of the high-performance director of the age-grade teams right. for USA Rugby. <clears throat> so that kind of gives you a background after pro yeah. rugby transitioning into that. Yeah, into that so, realm. So after that, pro had started – And um, Nigel Melville recommended me to Doug Solinger, who was the the owner, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, we won't go into detail around that. We'll just (laughs) leave that. (laughs) We can leave that. Um, But it was such a huge opportunity that I would never get anywhere else in the world. Uh Uh, No one's going to hire an American guy with limited experience being a head coach, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was brought in, so um, it was such a huge opportunity to take that lead and Mm -hmm. things and. Because you didn't have a huge infrastructure around you, it did get kind of difficult. You know, you're, right. you're running media, you're running, you know, you're doing all <laughs> these things plus trying to get your team going. Exactly and, to know, win, win matches. And yeah, stuff, but yeah, but it was such a huge experience, and the learn the learning
1: you took away was huge. Yeah, you know? and that yeah. kind of leads into the next question is just how important that year was, I guess, for rugby in the United States because that was like we, we like we just said we, we really don't need to get into rest but like a lot of the other people I've talked to that had either played or coached in pro just talked like you said talked about how much they learned and and it was really like just kind of the first shot you know like that kind of led into this whole new era you kind of feel that same way or, oh definitely yeah. the the takeaways
0: was were were huge um I look back on it and without that opportunity, I wouldn't have anything near what I have now. Yeah. It, it was like sticking five years in one season, you know, <laughs> it was just like, handle this. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause you were chasing your tail quite a bit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so Luke, I know we're kind of jumping around here a little bit, but uh, I wanted to ask you about being inducted into the hall of fame and just kind of what that meant to you and, and how did Brian Vizard tell you the news and what that kind of, that whole process was like. Uh, Viz, Viz called me and and told me, it was,
0: and I, I was uh, breathless, you know, it's such yeah. a huge honor to be um, thought that much of, uh-huh. you know, uh, and and then the, the night itself was incredible, because I had some very close friends and a lot of my family there and stuff, and nice. it, it was such a neat night, and then I uh, two of my children, two of the four kids were there with me, you nice. know, a, a nine and 11 year old. And I think they really enjoyed it. So, yeah. um, such a, such a, a, powerful
1: moment for myself. One of the last things I wanted to ask you before we let you go is just kind of about some of the, the changes going around, on around here, specifically with, uh, the, the United States, uh, national team kind of setting up shop here, right, right. One floor above you and, and just kind of what you guys have been working on as a, as an organization over these last few months. So, here at Glendale, um, we're, we're
0: taking a direction that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm over the moon. It kind of suits mm-hmm. me to take this direction with, with Glendale. Yeah. Um, I can't really speak on it now. In a couple of weeks, yeah. uh, we'll be able to release all the information. But uh, to follow on your other point about uh, USA Rugby being their 15 headquarters here, it's huge. We're Uh really excited about it to have them a floor above us. You know, you pop up
1: and say, hey, Hugh, what do you think of this? Or what, you know, it's it's pretty exciting. It seems like something that I know I had Ross on a few months, I think right before 4th of July, and uh, something we talked about a little bit just seems like a natural partnership, doesn't it? Like it's kind of surprising that, It took this long, but but for it to finally be here is exciting for, I mean, not only you and and the people of Glendale, but just kind of for for USA Rugby as a whole to kind of have like a true home where they can do everything under one roof. Would would you agree with that or Oh, definitely. Definitely.
0: And um, you know, there's a lot of benefit other than that. There's cost savings. There's having players who are based here and come flying out of here. It's just, it just makes sense. Like you said, it just makes complete sense.
1: Right. All right, Luke. Well, that's all the questions I had for you. If there's anything else you want to include, feel free to throw it in now, but I think that's kind of the best place to stop.
0: There we go. Sounds good to me. Awesome. Thank thank you you so
1: much, Luke. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, bro. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation with USA Rugby Hall of Famer, Luke Gross. Um, I know I certainly did. Has a very interesting career, interesting life, um, and... You know, I've gotten to know Luke pretty well over these last few months. I really like him, really great guy. Um, So I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation and and is excited about um, some announcements coming in the next few weeks. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into the next part of the show, which is always required reading. So this required reading this week is very important, obviously uh, today, September 11th. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about Mark Bingham. Um, so the, the required reading this week was called is entitled Remembering 9-11 Hero Mark Bingham. It's published on January 22nd, 2002 in The Advocate. Uh, so Mar- I'll give you a little background on Mark Bingham. Um, I, I wanted to do a whole big show about this, uh, write, write a big article about a reach out to some of the people that knew him the best. Unfortunately, just ran out of time. Like I mentioned, did not have enough time to, to do the things I wanted to do over these last couple of weeks with some other stuff going on. But I did want to take a second to talk about Mark Bingham because he's an important person, uh, and I want pe- I want a story to continue on. So I'm going to do it the, the best justice that I can, and then I would encourage you to go do some research, look at some of the content that's been made about him because it is really good and it's an important story and it's something that should live on. People should remember who Mark Bingham was. So uh, Mark Bingham was a rugby player that is – uh, credited as being one of the people who organized the plan to stop flight 93 from reaching its target um, this has been collected from phone records and stuff when when it when it became apparent that the plane was hijacked the people on board were making calls to their loved ones um, and it's been documented that mark bingham and, and a few other people were were kind of the guys that that made the decision to to kind of swarm into the cockpit and and try to take the plane back from the terrorists. So. Um, it goes without saying how big of a hero he is, now that we have an idea of you know what happened. He's, he's a big hero in every sense of the word. Without the brave actions of him and several others, the number of lives lost on September 11th could have been exponentially greater. Uh, and, and what kind of makes his story even better is the legacy that he's left behind since September 11th, 2001. So a little bit about Mark. He, he won two national championships at Cal when he was in college. After college, he played club rugby for a club called the San Francisco Fog, which was, which was a ma- uh, gay rugby club, it was made up of gay men. Um, and he helped co-found another gay rugby club called the Gotham Knights in New York when he made the move over to the East Coast before he died. So in May 2001, the International Gay Rugby Association and Board, which I believe is called International Gay Rugby now, created a tournament that was exclusive to gay rugby clubs and Mark's club Uh, The San Francisco Fog won that inaugural tournament back in May of 2001. That tournament took place in Washington. And then in 2002, after Mark passed away, the Fog helped uh, the tournament come to San Francisco. And it was unanimously decided to call this tournament the Mark Kendall Bingham Memorial Tournament. uh, And the trophy is called the Bingham Cup. So the tournament has grown exponentially. Uh, gay rugby teams from all over the world come to play in this tournament now, and, and the tournament is held all over the world. So unfortunately this year uh, it's moved to a, a two-year format, so every two years this tournament's played. And this year was supposed to be played in Ottawa, but the COVID-19 crisis has messed everything up, as we've all seen, and, and this tournament is not excluded from that. So but it's pretty crazy how, how much the tournament's grown Um so I can give you a rundown on the places that it's played, and then the teams that have played in it. It's literally come from all over the world. There's a bunch of teams in the pool. So the first one is in Washington, 2001. San Francisco in 2002. London in 2004. New York in 2006. We got teams from Australia, Canada, Ireland, Netherlands, United Kingdom. Bunch of teams from the United States. Um, there's three different divisions now as as this tournament grows. Has played in Dublin in 2008, Minneapolis in 2010, Manchester in 2012, Sydney in 2014, Nashville in 2016, Amsterdam in 2018, and it was supposed to be in Ottawa in 2020. So now it'll be in Ottawa in 2022. Hopefully, we're over all this COVID stuff by then. But I mean, it's pretty. I mean, it's just awesome to see how much it's grown. It's something that uh, Mark would love. Mark loved rugby. Mark would love to see how much you know rugby has grown, especially gay rugby. Rugby, We've talked about it a lot, rugby is for everybody. Um, and, and it's cool to see the the kind of impact that he had on the world um, in wake of a really awful situation. So I would encourage you all to go check that out. Uh, read up on Mark Bingham, there's books, there's movies. Um, the, the article that I'll put in this article that houses this podcast is that one I said at the top um, in The Advocate, uh, Remembering 9-11 Hero, Mark Bingham. And then Sports Center, ESPN did a little short on him. It's called "How Mark Bingham Left a Legacy on and Off the Rugby Field." So I would encourage you to go watch that too because it's very well done. So it kind of wraps up the required reading. This one is mandatory. You have to read this if you listen to this podcast. You have to do it. It's important. You have to do it. That's the rules. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into the loop. Um, as you probably gathered by now, there's some exciting news in terms of what's kind of going on with with Glendale Rugby and, and the Raptors. Uh, coming down the pipe here pretty soon so make sure you stay tuned for that follow along on twitter at dnvr rugby and uh, at colton strickler um, so yeah guys sorry for the short show but that's kind of what time has allowed this week so um, with that i uh, hope you all had a great week hope you'll have a great weekend thank you very much for listening to the show be back next week with a longer full episode um, so with that i'll catch you all next week